Good afternoon and welcome to the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition cost. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you're interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. Dr. Henry Phil Williams III is currently an adjunct professor at the Institute of World Politics. He has received degrees and diplomas from Culver Military Academy, the Universities of Virginia, Edinburgh, and Florence, and a PhD in International Law and Diplomacy from the Fletcher School, Tufts University. He has worked in four foreign languages and studied and worked more than 10 years of his life on the Mediterranean, including stints in Turkey, doing doctoral research, investment banking, consulting, and university-level teaching. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Williams. Well, let me begin by saying I'm really happy that you all came. I think I've, I probably it was a longer commute for me. I've come up from Charlottesville where I live, but I, I think most of you have had a shorter commute. So I, I'm very happy that you came. Uh, I hope you'll find my book uh, fascinating and what I have to offer, what it has to offer, uh, challenging and thought-provoking, etc. I would, it would be remiss of me, however, looking out on this enormous audience if I didn't observe the fact that, uh, that fully 20% of the audience uh, are related to me. So uh, my, I, have, I have two nephews here in the audience, uh, who are one working on the Hill and one as a consultant here in Washington, and they managed to uh, twist their boss's arms and get out a little bit early and, and come hear Uncle Phil uh, talk. So let me, uh, let me just start by saying that this is... Uh, this has been a, a book, you know, some people get engaged in something and they get funding for it and they study something or other for five or six or seven years and produce a book. In my particular case, um, I like to refer to it as an odyssey. My, my, my first experience on the Middle East, uh, or I should say on the Mediterranean, was uh, Three or three and a half months after I was married, my wife and I moved to Macedonia. They froze the draft. I was expected to be drafted and go off to Vietnam. They froze the draft at, at 110. They were supposed to take numbers up to 150 for those of you old enough to remember. And um, my number was 142, and they froze. And I had a backup job at an American mission school outside of Thessaloniki in northern Greece. And off I went. So my Mediterranean odyssey begins with my marriage. And, uh, and now literally goes back uh, to 1971. This book in many, in many ways, and there are parts of the book that actually tell a few stories uh, in, that go back as far as 1971 and 72, as I tell this story. So what it is, but this work is, is basically my opus, if you will. It is my lifetime's involvement in two great passions of my life. One turns out to be the Mediterranean the Near East, and Turkey in particular. Uh, and the, uh, the other turns out to be a great passion I have for uh, the founding of America, the founding of the American Republic, the early years of the Republic, uh, and um, American history, all the way up to current events. 
miraculously in 2013 when I was visiting uh, in Istanbul, Turkey, I was in, invited, my wife and I and our daughter uh, and her then boyfriend, now husband, were invited to a, a, a lovely dinner party, very dear friends of ours that have very close connections to Koch University uh, in Turkey. And around this table of august people uh, was the then relatively newly hired rector uh, of Koch University, Umran Una, who had spent 25 years uh, teaching, uh, was a stellar professor uh, at Stanford University, and they managed to bring him over. And um, I got a little advertisement from the host family about, uh, about my talents and my passions and my interests my country and in theirs, and uh, I ended up having, having been away from Turkey for almost 19 years, I ended up uh, trying to speak Turkish. I normally have been speaking Turkish maybe an hour, hour and a half a, a year on telephone with friends. So I just jumped right in, uh, feet first, after having doctoral research in Ankara, Turkey in the late 70s, a little over two years, and then from 88 to 92 being sent from Wall Street to open Turkey's first investment bank. So I, my, my perspective and my, my ability in Turkish was based on those experiences and I had, uh, had studied obviously in the, along the way, especially during my doctorate. So I had this amazing situation where I just jumped in, started speaking Turkish and could speak Turkish well enough and pronounce it well enough to say, and, can, and this is what I'm trying to say in Turkish, help me, help me. So I spoke in, the, in broken Turkish and talked about their history and talked about their current political situation, talked about the situation in America in 2013, politics in America and issues, as well as making a few references um, by way of discussion to founding principles of America. And the, the rector was there. I didn't know he was the rector. He was one of the men. My future son-in-law and daughter and wife went off as is a la Turca, the custom. They're over having their drinks. Uh, and, and talking, speaking English on that side of the room, I was sort of obliged to go to the other side of the room and find myself, uh, you know, trying to jump feet first back into speaking Turkish. And long story short, an offer was made at dinner, and he basically said, I don't care what you teach, it's clear to me that you, and you know more about our country than most of us do. You seem to know an awful lot about your country, and you seem to care about both. He said, you teach whatever you want to teach. I don't care if you come and lecture for a day, or you come and study for years, I will make it possible. And if you're a rector in the old world and in the Middle East, these are things you can make happen. So I come from a, from a not officially, you know, tenured track uh, academic background because I've done, I left academia, did, went to business and, and then came back to did consulting and then and found myself lecturing on these two great passions of my life. And this guy basically is inviting me to create a course from scratch. That course ended up uh, after 15 months and over 40, then over 40 years of experience on and off in the Middle East and in my own country, uh, ended up being 25 lectures. It's now 25 chapters in the book, turned into a, profession, into a professionalized uh, treatment of all this. But this is where it comes from, and this is my story. So I'm, I'm, these are things that I'm passionate about. These are things that I didn't get hired to write about and took me five years of research and two, three years to write. This is something where essentially pulling from talks that I've given over the years, personal experiences that I've had over the years. And the interesting thing is when I turn it from a lecture 
into a book, my, my tendency was, now this has got to sound professional, so, you know, the word I has to disappear. You know, the author this, the author that. Well, on subjects of terrorism and a few other things here and there, and uh, I, I, I'm teasing my editors, and the editor finally came back and said, Phil, you're too personally involved in this story. We can tell. You're teasing us. Tell us something more. Pick a few spots and bring out your own personal life in. So I, I went back and sort of desanitized this perfect author, this author, that stuff, to put a little bit of myself in the book. The fact of the matter is, a little bit of myself is in the story. So uh, one of the things that, that I am interested in here is talking about uh, there's a quote that I came across a number of years ago. There's probably everybody in this room can relate to that. I'm just guessing. But I suspect you can relate to Mark Twain's discovery. Uh, he wrote, he went on this trip a few years after the Civil War, uh, traveled to France, traveled to Greece, Turkey, Syria, and down into Egypt. And he came back with new dimensions in his life, and this is what he had to say. So uh, it turns out that this is probably true for all of, all of you, and it sure as hell is true for me in my uh, experiences. So here is the purpose of my book, is that, be, is that because I feel and have been told that I'm somewhat bicultural on this subject, because of the degree to which I've gone into both my own culture and the cultures that I sort of adopted in the process of work and teaching and banking, and so forth, that um, what I really was about was uh, recognizing, being the first to recognize that there are, that the chasms exist between East and West, uh, but realizing that after all is said and done, if you look at the actual East-West history, you're going to find a very considerable number of stories that happen every day, every month, and every year, which wasn't particularly interesting to write about. What people want to write about are battles. And this is the lore that gets passed down from one generation to another, including all the cultural baggage that goes with it. So I looked at this and I thought, nobody knows, nobody knows anything but that first phrase. Now, the two are inseparable, but what people know is the first. And what people presume is that this, they don't have any sense that, at the end of the day, Kipling's also saying there's something human about all of us that basically defies borders. It defies nationality. It can defy, uh, defy concepts of tribalism. And it could be as in frightening a location as the field of battle where nobody knows, you know, it's two men, two people fighting. Uh, and so I've tended to want, to want to take the second phrase and put it back up into the first because I think that's been my experience and what I've discovered, studied. And you could have started this little quote by saying, oh, Germany is Germany and France is France and never the twain shall meet. Is it true? They have met. 
Not always easy relationship. But Lord knows they fought for centuries, and through holy wars, and through world wars. And we have a, a European Union coming out of the European Coal and Steel committee, uh, Community. So I, I'm trying to suggest here, as I look at this, uh, this book theme, is what I say here is that we, you know, in, in terms of commerce and cultural exchange, it's much more significant than, the, than conflict, although conflict is what people write about and are most interested in. So this is a sort of conclusion that at the end of reading my book will, does, does not suggest that there are not chasms. Lord knows there are. And it could have been north is north and south is south and never the twain shall meet. You can find these examples everywhere. Uh, but it's, it's looking at that second paragraph there, uh, second sentence, and realizing that the cultural civilizational exchanges, which I go into in rather significant detail between the East and West, and times when the East had more to offer the West than the West had to offer the East, uh, is uh, really what I've come to know, believe, understand, and feel in my gut. So I try to bring a perspective to people who can, can easily fall into the, you know, this just isn't going to work. They're Muslim, we're not. You know, but it, it could have been, they're Catholic and we're Protestant. It is never going to happen. So this is what I'm trying to sensitize the reader to because from my background, and because of my interdisciplinary training at Fletcher, and now me, a Fletcher graduate on steroids, my book will talk about literature also. We'll talk about art. We'll talk about music. And we'll eventually talk about tourism and business to B2B, business to business relations. Because this is the stuff of what the original internet superhighway was, which we all know to be the, the Silk Road. Marco Polo going east. You know, pyrotechnical, this, that, and the other thing, coming from the east back to the west. And I'll talk about a few things that, that were just critical to jump-starting. Uh, the Renaissance, for example, which we somehow think came from totally within the Westerner. And it, it actually didn't. Uh, it needed a lot of help. So, obviously, I, in the course of the book, I, I, I look at conflict. Unavoidable. But I'm trying to make sure that everybody understands that we have a schism in the, in the, in the Christian church in the 11th century, uh, that we had holy wars for the better part of 130 years. So after, after the Treaty of Westphalia, the 1648 treaties of 1648-49, Europeans still found a way, with tribal instincts or otherwise, found a way for resources and control of rivers and, and mineral resources and so forth still found a way to fight each other but it was but they were all they were all invoking the same god you know we're fighting for god yeah they said that on the german side of the line and they said it on the french side of the line so we're no longer fighting ostensibly uh, using religion as the rationale that will bring people together it's more power and resources it's more naked even uh, than religion same is true here i mean this difference of Sunni and Shia comes out, really, this divide begins in the, in the latter part of the 7th century. And it has, you know, their controversy already about legitimate 
people coming out as being the caliphs. Were you a blood relative or not? The differences were not, never so pronounced until there were some atrocities committed on the grandson of the prophet. Now all of a sudden, uh, th these, are, these, are, these are fighting words. This happened in the American uh, Civil War. Virginia didn't really want to get in the war, and they knew that the brunt of it was going to be fought in Virginia. And the vast majority of them, uh, even 30 years before the Civil War, they were within one vote in 1830 in Virginia of outlawing slavery. One vote. Uh, 15 years later, before the Civil War, Pennsylvania outlawed it. That's how close Virginia was. And they knew that if the war broke out, that the brunt of it would be fought. Most of them didn't, were not interested in the war until your kinsmen start dying. So this is a story about how a lot of this happens, and I want people to understand the controversy and bloodshed between Islam and Christianity. We all know it, it goes back to the Crusades and the Muslim counter-strikes. But uh, <clears throat> you, what, what people don't know is, you know, what, what, are, the, what are the Muslims? What, what is their recollection of the Crusades? What do they think about it? What do they think about infidels? After all, we're infidels. You know, they're, they're infidels to us and we're infidels to them. What, what do they take away from this? So, let me share, begin to share a little bit uh, from, from the book here. And uh, you'll get a little bit of flavor. And I'll start back in history. This is basically, uh, basically these perceptions of East and West which we seem to be so obvious today, guess what? They were already obvious by the time Homer is writing the Iliad. Who are the good guys? Anybody? Greeks? Who are the bad guys? Trojans? What was separating them in the end? Not even just the Dardanelles. Herodotus, uh, the Aegean, Herodotus, 300 years after Homer's writing, refers to Greeks crossing the Dardanelles into the east. And he grew up on a Greek island, by the way, off the coast of modern-day Turkey. And Herodotus is writing, the concept of threats from the east, from the point of view of Westerners, goes back to Xerxes, it goes way back. The concept of threats from the west that's exactly what Darius was saying. These Greeks are going to give us trouble here on the Mediterranean. We want to be involved in trading on the Eastern Mediterranean. These damn Greeks over there in the West have to be, have to be subdued. So my book is trying to let you read both sides and understand the, the cultural aspects of how we come to have all this baggage that, that we carry with us very often until you and I go somewhere and meet somebody, and you discover that they're fabulous. They're Muslim, and they're fabulous, or they're Chinese, and they're fabulous. And you meet them in your personal life, and you discover, how can this, you know, how can this kind of enmity exist? Well, that's the reason you have cap political capitals. So, let's just go back <clears throat> a little bit. This is in the, in the chapter, Competition and Conflict Around the Mediterranean Basin. In summary, Crusader failure to recapture Jerusalem from the Muslim infidels, quote-unquote, 
remained an obsession and a scar in the heart of Western Christendom until the end of World War I, when Britain and France, under the terms of the Versailles Treaty, gave England and France quote-unquote mandated influence over the Levant more than six centuries after the fall of the Latinate Kingdom of Jerusalem. Arguably, the defeat of the Crusaders remained in the memory of Muslim culture as a source of pride, of rightness, and the superiority of Islam and the fulfillment of the will of Allah. I imagine most of you never thought about that. This, to them, their victory was a vindication for something that, that the Prophet actually called for in his life. Great will be the man in the eyes of Allah who can take Constantinople from the Byzantines. So we just fast forward a little bit. Symbolically, the capture of the capital of the Holy Roman Empire in 1453, home to the Byzantine successors to the great empire of Constantine, dealt yet another blow to the psyche of Christian Europe. The idea that Emperor Justinian's great Saint Sophia Basilica, by then the seat of the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate, had been turned into a mosque was a public shame to the head and heart of Christendom. And I quote a priest on the island of Crete who said in 1453, quote, there never has been and never will be a more dreadful happening. So these perceptions keep getting filled and geography continues uh, to play an enormous role in people's uh, association uh, with rightness and righteousness. So let me go a little bit further here. <clears throat> and when we talk about the gifts from what some people call the Golden Age, the Abbasids, the Golden Age of Islam, uh, you will re remember that, th that the greatest library in the world was burned by Caesar's troops 45 years or so before Christ was born. This was a treasure trove of the writings of Plato and Galen and Aristotle and so forth that was burned up. This led to, if you will, to the beginning of the Dark Ages, if you were to pick one of the, thi one of the things that, that stands out as being a loss to Western civilization. Who revives it? How does it get revived? Do any of you remember a, a Thousand and One Nights, Harun al-Rashid? is remembered for many reasons. The focus will be on his house of wisdom, the Beit al-Hikmah. This was the new great library, and he assembled Persian and Byzantine and Jewish and Arab scholars to come in and find that, pull together the scrolls they have from ancient wisdom, the ancient world. All of it ended up being translated into Arabic. So <clears throat> here's the story. He founds this, this uh, house of wisdom established in Baghdad during his reign, 1786 to 18, 786 to 809. This became the center of learning and translation of works in Greek, Persian, and Indian text. By the middle of the 9th century, it is said to be the largest repository of books in the world, only to be destroyed during the Mongol invasions of the 13th century. As a center, it was unrivaled in the study of humanities, science, mathematics, astronomy, alchemy, cartography, and philosophy. 
Islamic scholars gathered here to study and to translate the ancient works into Arabic. From there, Western scholars began to translate the works of Aristotle, Plato, and others, uh, initially into Latin, and then sub subsequently into vernacular languages, and bring that learning into the West, helping to fuel the Renaissance. So, what, what else is fueling uh, this, this renaissance and helping it, how does this knowledge along the Silk Trail, the uh, Silk Road that gets aborted because of conflict as far as reaching Western Europe, gets interrupted, interdicted, and so forth. Well, it turns out that the vast majority of the scholarship uh, that was done in the West to bring the learnings of the ancient teachings of the ancients, the sciences, uh, to the West, actually comes through Al-Andalus, from uh, Moorish Spain. These scrolls and things are brought across by the Arabs and Berbers across the Maghreb, North Africa, and up into these great cities of Granada, and Toledo, and Sevilla. And here are centers where rich bishops and kings send their scribes down to learn Arabic in the beginning in the 11th and 12th century to learn Arabic in order to translate that into Latin. How many people were going to be able to read those, those Latin translations in Western Europe at the time? And guess what? They still had to be written on vellum. Vellum is animal hide. Very expensive. Only, again, the, the, the elite of the elite could afford books. So, so what, what comes across North Africa, in addition to this wisdom in Latin, is that eventually uh, two inventions come. First, cheaper paper is introduced in the West through Al-Andalus, through Moorish Spain, into Western Europe. So now we, and at the same time, we have guys like Chaucer, Dante, Racine, Corneille, beginning to democratize the spoken word of the tribes of Western Europe and creating Italian vernacular, Italian, French, English, and German. So now we have a vernacular language that can be read by people other than people who were privileged enough to read, to have been trained in Latin, on paper, that was now affordable, more affordable, that could now be printed on a Chinese, on an improved Chinese invention that comes across the Silk Road in, into Western Europe and gets converted by a man by the name of Gutenberg. At the same time that, that Constantinople is falling, Gutenberg is introducing a press. We have a press, we have cheap paper, we have vernacular language. Who's reading it? Who can afford this now? A new class, this new class, becomes known as the bourgeoisie. How do you get that class? In this case, these are gifts, if you will, from Anglo-Saxon tradition, beginning with Magna Carta. All of a sudden, the rights of individuals, or be they, the elites initially, the rights of individuals as opposed to just the king, the whole concept of sovereignty that was challenged for the first time officially in Magna Carta, begins to change what eventually becomes popular sovereignty as we pass through social contract theory from guys like Hobbes, Locke, Montesquieu, on into Thomas Jefferson's desk, Washington's desk, 
Franklin's desk, those concepts of the Enlightenment that eventually fuel our revolution, um, starting with the English Revolution in 1688, where nobody, nobody died. It was the beginning of a change in this concept of rule of law, the rise of secularism, and a nation state, creating a new wealth that didn't exist before. This is the wealth of the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie could read, had to read, vernacular language. They needed some no, a couple of other developments. Contract law, coming out of the Anglo-Saxon tradition, they developed this contract law, which means concepts of personal property, which don't seem to present themselves in the East, in Islam, where property is very, typically, other than the sultans, is, is confined to foundations, vakuf, that actually belong to the church, if you will. They belong to, to Islamic mosque. So very difficult to trade these properties that are actually owned, that have money in them. They, it, somebody can't say, in exchange for several shiploads of spices from Indonesia, uh, you can have this farmland in Anatolia. That doesn't work. That works along the seaport towns, the Hanseatic Trading League that takes this learning down into what becomes you know, Russia and trading down all the way uh, eventually around the world. Now, if you're, it, you need some more security. So you, you, you're accumulating capital, you're speaking the same language, you're beginning to read things and deal with contracts, but you need something else. The right of property, private property, you know, has to be made patently clear, which it was in the documents by which Jamestown and Plymouth Bay colonies were established. Concept is firmly in there. The right of habeas corpus, speedy trial by your peers, is in the contracts for these founding cities, uh, settlements uh, in, in North America. But you need, you need some more financial technology. So what happens is how do we, how do we lay off this risk in a way that people don't, uh, aren't threatened by losing their, their entire fortunes in their life? We need to create something known as the stock market, and it happens in London, and then it happens, goes over, over, the, over the channel to Antwerp. Okay, so now you have this new concept of limited liability corporation, absolutely essential for further accumulating wealth amongst the bourgeoisie and incentivizing them. Now their wealth is almost beginning to, potentially as, as, as groups, to uh, I mean, they have more wealth than, than the kings in many cases, in some of these principalities or princes. So they're, they're becoming sources of capital. They need one more element. It gets developed. Lloyd's of London, the bond market. So you take an equity risk, but you can never lose more than you put in. Somebody else, for a little less risk, will take a piece of that risk. And a whole new market, a bond market, goes in place. This does not happen in the East. This does not happen. It has everything to do with a lot of things, which is, you know, the, the lifting off of the Industrial Revolution. You needed those elements that came from the West. They didn't travel back East over, over the uh, Silk Road. In large measure, or at least in some measure, because Islam itself did not admit of secular authority, had issues of owners, private ownership and so forth. So it, it was, as a business proposition, Everything that had to be done by the Sultan, to make a long story short. Whereas you have eventually thousands of business people, 
you know, in Germany and France and England and Ireland and so forth, combining their wealth to go out and to do what? They want to get access to silver and gold and spices. They're tired in the West. They're tired of paying taxes to the Ottomans, who control the Mediterranean and the Silk Road. The taxes you're paying there become a little bit onerous. So let's take some of that ancient technology like the astrolabe, which comes back and says, we can do uh, very significant navigation if we can build ships that can stand sailing in oceans, not in the Mediterranean. And the original ships all sailed on, the, on the, the Phoenicians and everybody all sailed on the edges of the Mediterranean. It was a while before they could cross it. So all of a sudden you now have a financial incentive to acquire wealth that, that goes hand in hand with colonization. These things all lead to an industrial revolution and an accumulation of wealth in the West and a rise in technology. And what else does that printing press do in vernacular languages with cheap paper? It means guys like Martin Luther can write about what's wrong with the Catholic magisterium. Eventually, his life is threatened and he has to be given safe haven by a prince uh, in Germany. But uh, he is able to write. The other person writing, not exactly pro-Catholic magisterium, really, he also saying we need reform, is the guy who sort of launches humanism, where we're taking scientific thought and rational thought from the ancients, which we rediscover, we can now read and afford, and discover that we're missing out on some things here. And, <clears throat> and you get Erasmus, and you actually get the debates between Erasmus and Luther. Uh, and what helps to protect the Protestant Reformation? Well, then you have to go back to East, because it turns out that uh, Suleiman the Magnificent, or Suleiman Kanuni, Suleiman, the lawgiver, makes the first attempt in the late 1520s uh, to take Vienna. He eventually runs out of steam and dies, and it takes a couple more generations. Now, all of a sudden, uh, they're acquiring greater control uh, all the way up in, into uh, near Russia, up into Romania, and the river systems and the Rhine, and they're pushing in the Balkans and so forth and so on. Get to, you know, terrible battles, but they, but the Muslims are gaining strength, and all of a sudden the Holy Roman League says, you know, Luther is a pain. He's a serious pain, but losing Vienna could be the end for all of us. So the Holy League comes back together, gets totally preoccupied with defending Vienna, and in the meantime, the Protestant Reformation, its teachings which also accent individuality, right? This you now can have your personal relationship with God. This doesn't mean you shouldn't have a hierarchy in a church. A church has its purposes, but it's not a substitute, and you're not precluded from having a relationship with God, yourself. You're encouraged. St. Paul encourages you to have that, and he makes it, puts his, you know, 99 theses up in 1517, and, you know, they're ready to hang, the Catholic Church is ready to hang them, but they had, and later, they just preoccupied with protecting against Muslim encroachment. After all, it was as early as 732 at the Battle of Tours that Charlemagne's grandfather, Charles the Hammer, those, anybody drink cognac here? You ever heard of Martel cognac? You've heard of Courvoisier. Martel's another good one. Martel is named for his, his grandfather, Charles Martel, who stopped... Muslim invasions from 
Moorish Spain. Stops them in 732 and pushes them back. Over, slowly they retreat over the Pyrenees, and for the next several hundred years, they slowly give up territory eventually uh, until Ferdinand and Isabella, you know, put, uh, neutralize uh, Islam and force the Jews to leave and come east. Most of, great many of them come where? They come to Izmir, then Smyrna. They come to Thessaloniki, and they come to Istanbul. Why? Because the Sultan offers them safe haven in 1492. Same guy, some guy, same year, some guy was sailing west, discovering the ocean blue in America. So all of these things are all integrated. They are all necessary for the story of how the West develops, including the inheritance from the East. The East inherits things from the West, absolutely, uh, to be sure. But eventually they don't inherit them all voluntarily. They begin to lose in the battlefield, in technology financial sciences, everything else, and eventually uh, require. So, so the, the book looks at these stories and goes back and forth and has the reader, you know, coming to, to appreciate both what was a, a gift from Islam and then eventually what the West had to offer. The East, and if you were really cynical, you would say, well, rediscovering the ancients was rediscovering our Greek roots and we're all, you know, we all come to the cradle of civilization is in the West, beginning in Greece. And this is, of course, the story that you would get from any, any of my best Greek friends. So this is, needs to be, you know, taken with a grain of salt uh, because the Arabs actually did more than just translate these. They tested, they approved their science, and the science moved West. When Baghdad had fountains and street lighting, Paris was a jungle by comparison in the 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries. They're not called the Dark Ages for nothing. So all of a sudden we have this situation where this new country that's a, that is a product of the rule of law, changes in the rule of sovereignty, the queen and the king had to delegate sovereignty in the contracts to Jamestown and Plymouth because they needed representatives. You couldn't have anybody there. So somebody had to be delegated that authority. This was a key development for what became the independence and, and, and the American response to no taxation without representation. It may have taken 150 years to evolve, but it begins with the founding of the early settlements in North America. So <clears throat> you have Americans begin uh, actually before the, even before the American Revolution. Uh, One-fifth of all the hulls leaving the East Coast in trade were headed to the Mediterranean. You're headed to the Mediterranean, you were likely to be interrupted by, by some pirates along the way, and this became uh, quite a story in the formation of, uh, of America. And if you look in my book and read about the debates in 1786 and 87 about what America needed to be able to do to take its seat at the table of civilized nations and not be the subject of piracy that was indirectly controlled by Istanbul, we had to build a fleet. We had to, we had to do some things that we were afraid of. Centralized authority. we just thrown it off. we just thrown the king off. So let me share 
So if we take us into this 19th century, and we're, America's trading, America's a good guy. Americans are good guys. They're not Europeans. And the Sultan eventually decides he quite likes the Americans precisely because they're not French. They're not German. Uh, not to mention uh, Greek independence crazed people and their poetic supporters like Lord George Byron. So this is about the Eastern question and eventually uh, the Crimean War. Underlying all these considerations was the Western presumption that the Ottoman Empire would eventually fall apart of its own mismanagement. It was just a matter of time. However, as long as the Western powers could not agree who would pick up what pieces, it became more important to prop up Ottoman Turkey. The prospect of a chaotic dismemberment by interested powers, each seeking to carve out a sphere of influence, was fraught with risk for all parties. In the wake of the American Revolution, the newly developing principle of nationalism was probably more frightening to the kings of France, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Italy than it was to the Ottomans. But the Ottomans were in for a rude awakening on that subject. Again, uh, a, a simple observation which is very prescient by one of the best writers, Orlan Fijas, on the Crimean War and the mid-19th century. And he says, in the end the war offered a victory to the Turks and the European allies. It left the Russian Empire in bad shape and the Ottoman in worse. One of the outcomes which has haunted the West to this day was, in the words of Fijas, it opened up the Muslim world of the Ottoman Empire to Western armies and technologies accelerating its integration into the global capitalist economy and sparked an Islamic reaction against the West, which continues to this day. So, again, I'm, 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 all, I'm all about dealing with uh, perceptions and, and how people come to think uh, about, about the world uh, the way they do. Now, let's just take one of the products of this enlightenment. The American Revolution. It's a story that begins midstream in a long and arduous history of man's reshaping his relationship to society, social contract, sovereignty, etc. It is the story of a yearning for individual freedom. It is the story of people and societies discovering that sovereignty need not rest in the divine right of king or church, but in the divine and natural right of people to freely govern themselves. Sacrifice, courage, endurance, and death are hallmarks of the American Revolution writ large in the national memory of all sides involved. Fact and quote-unquote useful myths of the key figures involved abound and abide. The American Revolution was a battle for the hearts and minds of people waged in the context of the 18th century Enlightenment and fought from the Indian Ocean to the Mediterranean, the Atlantic to the Caribbean, and along the Mississippi. It was fought in the halls of government in Philadelphia, in England, France, Spain, Russia, and the Netherlands. Pitched battles were fought from Canada to Bunker Hill, at Trenton, Brandywine, and in the Ohio Valley, from Charleston to Guilford Courthouse, naval engagements took place from off the coast of India to the Capes, off the coast of Virginia, from Flamborough Head, England, to the Caribbean, from the coast of Senegal to Manila, from Gibraltar to Yorktown. This was a war waged by Whigs and Tories, rebels and loyalists, kings, politicians, soldiers and sailors, mercenaries of many countries, Native Americans, bankers, farmers, privateers, pamphleteers, Slaves, men, women, and children.
So let's let's look fast forward a little bit to the uh, First World War, and let's. Uh, this is titled. This is in the chapter on leadership traits of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, uh, titled sub subsection outcome for the Allies: Churchill personally, Australia, and New Zealand. The Western Allies would win the war, but the loss at Gallipoli had several important and lasting effects. Colonel Mustafa Kemal's success was mirrored by Winston Churchill's failure as First Lord of the Admiralty. As the Gallipoli campaign had been championed by Churchill, he was saddled with the failure. There were others, Lord Kitchener in particular, who share blame, but the disaster at Gallipoli with a quarter of a million men dead, nearly half from disease or wounded, with nothing to show for it, left Churchill in disgrace. His star would be diminished for 20 years, when it would again rise in connection with the Nazi threat. Um, the Kamalist Revolution, what we're dealing with today. The hallmark of the revolution, Kamalist secularism, has yet to be called into question openly by Turkish leaders today. Here, changes in international orientation by the Turkish state, not inappropriately rationalized and fueled by business diversification, opportunity, and success, have exposed secular Turkey to the temptation to reactivate a more Ottoman-like vision of its role in the Middle East and North Africa, more imperially motivated. Turkey is undergoing a traumatic and cathartic struggle to redefine itself in the 21st century. It is a titanic struggle fought with change and fraught with risks as the July 15, 2016 military coup revealed. So we talk about the Eastern question here. I thought just a little bit of humor might help. If you can't read this all, it says, boom, boom, bang, bang, pow, pow, pow. It says, sir, we have reason to believe that our adversaries actually have no weapons whatsoever. And this is titled, The Fall of the Onomatopoeia Empire. So, this is not a slide I'll use in my presentation uh, in Istanbul a month from now. But, uh, so, maybe a couple more things here. Uh, this is talking, uh, this chapter is on freedom of speech. In conclusion, it's fair to say that at different times, both the governments of America and Turkey have justified the suppression of freedoms of speech and press, and at times justified the suspension of the rule of law. These policies have always been aimed at minorities, racial, ethnic, and religious, or those accused of undermining national security. Government surveillance of suspected groups continues to threaten the civil rights of citizens in both countries, although a case can be made that they differ in degree between these two. So I'm, you know, I'm bringing us up eventually for Herodotus. We're, we're now moving toward the 21st century. And uh, I know you want to ask some questions, so let me just see if there's... The extent, to the extent that Turkey is competing in the Arab world for regional hegemony with Iran, without the advantage of substantial oil reserves and revenues, or the desire to... Uh, developed nuclear weapons, places it in a tight spot. In the Islamic Crescent, Turkey's historic and religious sympathies with Sunni Muslims, all the more so under the Islamist predilections of Turkey's President Erdogan, 
as opposed to Iranian Shias or their Syrian Alawite cousins in Damascus. Turkey must play a delicate game. Like all the players, it must be prepared, prepared to speak out of both sides of its mouth. It must be able to change course in a hurry as events change on the ground. So, and I think we'll move to the very end here and see what else we have. So the book deals with significant issues of the day, beginning with the formation of the coal and steel community, uh, and all the issues that have played out in Brexit, and then the Trump election, which I talk about here in the book, and reaction to various issues that on the one hand have spurred a rise in nationalism, um, and it, that has been at the expense, if you will, of supranationalism, that is, UN organizations, the EU, Brussels, etc., etc. Uh, but these are the issues, you know, that, that come out of the uh, current debates that are treated with in my book. Um, this gives you just an encapsulation of non-government relations, which are significant, and I've been a party to as a businessman and, and a student and a teacher and a tourist uh, there, and they coming to Western Europe in the United States. So at the end of the book, I say on the last page that this book has been written with the intention of telling a story revealed to me over a lifetime of experiences and studies, which have carried me across ages, civilizations, continents, and oceans. It is hoped that the reader has been challenged and stimulated to continue to search for benevolent understanding that brings more peace and stability to a world at once latent with an abundance of both hate and love. There is truth in both the East and the West. Each must set his or her compass with bearings that seek to accommodate this elusive reality. So, I talk about the chasms and I talk about the bridges uh, over a couple thousand years, bringing you up to current events. I had lunch with this fellow today, whom I know. Uh, this was a headline of an article. We have an election coming up. I arrive in Turkey three days after the election, and uh, as some or all of you will know, uh, Erdogan is contesting the outcome of the mayoral election in Istanbul that took place on March 30th because it didn't go to his party, and so he figured that somebody must be cheating. Now, it's the only thing I can think of is that he didn't cheat, if I may say so, he didn't cheat as efficiently as, as he normally has and does and he managed to lose six major cities uh, to the opposition, which I think is important. Uh, a little chink in his armor. It's been coming since the Gezi Park uh, protest movement of 2013. In fact, I think it's a little bit older than that. I talk about the internal politics of Fethullah Gulen, uh, who resides in the Poconos here that Erdogan says he wants to extradite to Turkey, and if we said yes, he would freak out. It would be more embarrassing and more trouble as possible. But knowing that the rule of law in America will preclude, not the possibility of a political decision by our president, but in a court of law, the grounds for extraditing Gulen as being instrumental in the coup in 2016 uh, just aren't there. I've literally known that since uh, 
since late in that uh, 2016, I, I knew someone who was hired, Harvard-trained guy at a law firm in Turkey, who went over the raft of uh, documents that were being sent to Washington to prove, which were all circumstantial. And he said, in the American court of law, the guy will never be extradited. That doesn't mean that politically it might not happen, but it's unlikely. But we're now beginning to see some interesting fallout here, uh, some weakening. Uh, many of you know that the lira has been under enormous attack, and uh, Turkey's external payments, uh, there's a need to come up with, with $170 billion in principle by the end of this year uh, to stay current on their international debt obligations. Uh, the likelihood of that is very low. The issue, <clears throat> not covered in my book, obviously, because it's the last few months here. Last quote in my book, by the way, is as current as January, uh, about freedom of speech in Turkey. But the things that are going on now that are front-page news regarding the uh, F-35 and the Russian uh, S-400 and the negotiations going on there, um, he's going to spend them in the ground on the risk, on, on the, I guess, on the, on the, on the belief that, that Trump can and will do something that, con that Trump can't do. Trump is not as powerful in his country as Erdogan is in his. Erdogan supposedly with the referendum of uh, last summer, you know, introduced the American executive system of government, except for all the checks and balances that exist in the American government. So uh, he, I think he finds this difficult because I think he thinks that he can negotiate as though he's negotiating with uh, a Middle Eastern potentate or whatever, that uh, he can negotiate a deal that will allow him to have his cake and eat it too. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to sever relations with Russia because it turns out that Russia and Turkey have a lot in common. They have way more that isn't in common and will never be in common. And I know this. I was also in the Crimea uh, two years ago, secretly um, visiting there and looking at Russian submarines and rusting Ukrainian ships and so forth and so on. But the, the two of them share one thing in common. Neither has any friends right now. So this is tending to drive them to get together, but it's a, as I would say, it's, it's not fundamental, it's transactional. It's related to gas pipelines, it's related to uh, military exchanges and so forth and so on. But the issues are enormous and the issues confronting potentially confronting NATO are, and the United States in particular, I think are not going away. Our European friends are a little bit reticent to stay too much more than neutral, I'm observing. Uh, but that is because if, if, the, if there is fallout in NATO, if Turkey is withdraws or makes the case that it was forced out, the, it will be economically disastrous for Turkey it will also be very difficult uh, for Western Europe. The trade, Moorish potential issues of uncontrolled migration and so forth. So the fallout of, a, of a, a standoff between Erdogan and Trump will first and foremost affect uh, Europe and Turkey itself. So they're, 
in principle, the Europeans support the notion that a NATO ally should not be bringing in a Russian anti-missile system. And then we give them the F-35 so they figure out how to dial in an F-35. It just fundamentally is pretty clear why we shouldn't be doing that. But we may end up with a showdown, big showdown. And I think there are issue there, and Kemal, with whom I had lunch today, agreed at the end of the day, the West has to be very careful uh, not to burn all bridges and, and get to a point where it can't walk back certain things. Erdogan uh, will go out of office eventually. His legacy will last at least another generation because he's appointed a lot of 40 and 50 year olds to the bench, to the press, to corporations, to university rectors, etc. So trying to recover an equilibrium between secular and pious Turkey is not going to happen just because Erdogan's no longer president, so it's going to, the fallout's going to be a little longer lived, but the, the issue of Turkey probably rebalancing its relations with the West versus those of the East will come back to something uh, a little bit more like the post-World War II era that we've seen when they signed on to uh, NATO and joined us fighting in Korea and have fought with us in Bosnia and in Afghanistan. So this is, this, is a, this is more than a book, ladies and gentlemen. This is a story. And it may not be the greatest story ever told, but it is one hell of a story, I assure you. And I don't know of another book that, that you can find experts on any pieces of this. I don't know of another book on the earth, I suppose there is one, that will integrate 2,000 years of the history uh, the way I have done and have loved doing and was finally paid to do. So I thank you for coming today, and I'm happy to answer any questions. My nephews think it's okay. What else could they say? <laughs> yes, what? Is there a Muslim Brotherhood influence in the Erdogan ideology or in the Turkish body politic? Or Strikes me that you know the answer to that. No, I don't. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And what, he, what, are, what are those links? Those links are, 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 are not very, uh, they're rather transparent and they're rather historic and they were in, inherited from the influence that Erbakan, his mentor, if you will, Islamicist, uh, had upon him. And he has been a member of the Nakshibendi, which has been the, one of the more political, uh, historically, they were the Nakshibendi's ones that fought the Tanzimat reform efforts in 19th century. Turkey, with the support of ulema, the priestly classes, but the answer is uh, his, his ties are extremely close, which is why the only place that he can find money, the only place he can find money to build a palace that's literally ten times the size of the, the White House in Ankara, the only place he could, he, he ran out of money halfway through it, it's roughly something like a billion, and he had to turn to the Qataris. So it's really a Muslim Brotherhood connection that has brought money in to finish the construction of his Selchuk, Selchukian uh, palace that he has there. So the answer is their ties are uh, rather extraordinary. And as strong as his ties are with the Muslim Brotherhood is, is, why, is, has, is, is all the reason why he has the support of Hamas in Palestine, but not al-Sisi in Egypt not the president of, uh, not in Amman, and not in Riyadh, 
uh, because they're busy, busy trying to trying to keep out of their kingdoms uh, radical Islam, which they thought they could export and pay for with oil and build mosques and hope that the problem would be exported for them and it's coming back to haunt them. And the answer is very closely tied to the Muslim Brotherhood. Thank you. That's a good question. Thank you for those threats. Yeah, yeah. Anybody else? Yes, sir. You mentioned Cyprus only once in your slides. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, Cyprus is a place that I ended up doing some, uh, as it turns out, surreptitious uh, um, advisory work for Raut Dengtash, who was the president of Northern Cyprus. Unbeknownst to the Minister of uh, the Interior, who had circumscribed the area that I was allowed to, areas that I could visit in Turkey, which basically wrote off everything in eastern Turkey or out of Turkey. So I happened to meet. Um, various people and ended up taking a, tr a trip to Vaughn and Tatvan and having conversations and having my first uh, minced lamb served in the skull of a lamb. Thank God my wife was not aboard on that trip. Uh, and I also uh, went down uh, to Cyprus. So I was in Cyprus in 78, um, you know, three years after the invasion, as they would say in Athens, the intervention, as they would say in Ankara. And so I follow this ever since, and it turns out I have, uh, when I came back to do my uh, doctoral dissertation, uh, there was a Turkish student from northern Cyprus, uh, and we became great friends, are still friends, and I took my family <clears throat> down to meet him before he had a family, first time. He was married uh, in Lefkosha, in Nicosia, in Girne, uh, up on the coast, <clears throat> Kairinia. And uh, I've been several times since. I was there most recently in 2016, and I've looked at the underground water pipeline that was built and laid from Turkey to Cyprus to solve water shortages in northern Cyprus. Uh, I've looked at, I'm one of the few people that has been allowed to um, compliments of Raut Dengtash. Uh, I was given an escorted visit uh, to Barrosha, this uh, city that was part of this civil war between the Turkish Cypriots, Greek Cypriots, and eventually the Turkish military. Uh, on the eastern end of the island, it's, uh, it's uh, wired off and has been. And the city it was then three years after fighting there and bullet holes, all these beautiful hotels and casinos and so forth were still completely evident. And it's amazing how quickly bricks and mortar without some attention can decay. And it was, it was sad to see it. So now the Curry issue is uh, when there was a, a discovery, or more than one, discover, potential discoveries of uh, oil off the island of Cyprus, everybody decided that their territorial waters gave them uh, a right to be at the, at the negotiating table. That includes the Egyptians, the Israelis, Turkey, Greek mainland, Turkish Cypriots, and Greek Cypriots. So um, the battle is, is waging on. Uh, <clears throat> the Turks have threatened now and have moved one of their two new drilling platform ships down into the waters uh, between uh, mainland uh, Anatolia and Turkey and Cyprus. And if you don't know this, um, Cyprus is probably 400 miles away from, from Athens, and it's about maximum of 40 miles away from Turkey. So uh, this is now not being very well met by everybody, but the story goes back to uh, almost they found a, uh, 
reconciliation to the problem in 2005 uh, by uh, people who were supposed to sign on to the Kofi Annan peace plan. Uh, the problem was that the, the peace plan was, uh, was the date for final signatures. It was set for three or four months after the candidacy for Greek Cyprus to have been brought into the EU Union with leadership from Athens succeeded. Once they were in the EU, the referendum came up. Largely, all oh, the Turkish Cypriots voted uh, for the plan, and largely the Greek Cypriots said, mm -mm, no. So it's a frozen problem uh, uh, to this day. I'll probably go there uh, this summer to see my friend. And the, the irony and the saddest part about it is, is that if there is oil off two or three of the coasts of that island, it could be the economic solution to reparations and exchanges to balance uh, the claims of Greek Cypriots against Turkish Cypriots and so forth. Uh, there's the money to pay, for, to pay for it to happen. And of course, they can't stop fighting long enough to try to realize those uh, underwater resources and have them aimed at a resolution to reparations to be satisfied by the communities and to have some government at least similar to what they had up until 1960. Or, you know, the only difference now is that the, it's not just the, the president would not only be, uh, not always be Greek Cypriot and the vice president always Turkish Cypriot. Uh, the deals pretty much anybody's ever dreamt of ever since then, of course, require that the, it needs to rotate. The presidency of Cyprus would need to rotate between a Turkish Cypriot and Greek Cypriot representative. The fundamental basis for the Kofi Annan plan uh, requires that uh, right from the beginning. So it uh, continues to be a difficult area. There are always reasons, you know, the Greeks flying military missions on islands off in the Aegean. Uh, on the other hand, we have earthquakes in both countries where uh, rescue missions are sent from Athens to Istanbul or from Istanbul to Athens, uh, even more recently, that are very well received. And I know something that a lot of people don't want to, uh, don't know, can't know, or wouldn't want to know. I, since I lived in the countryside and traveled in the countryside in both countries, I, did, I learned early on in the 1970s and later when I first went to Turkey in the later 70s that when you get out in the countryside, you find the people wholly less politicized than they are in the capitals, wholly less. And you ask them about it. What was startling and marvelous for me is that whether I was speaking in Greek in, in villages in Macedonia or I was speaking in Turkish in villages in, in the Aegean area, the answer was almost inevitably the same. They're just like us. Most, most of them and most of us are good. Not all of them and not all of us are good. And these are people who for years, you know, tied knots and made rugs together and one eats jajik and the other eats tzatziki. Uh, it's the, the, there's so many things aside from the, the mosque uh, versus the church versus the temple that they share in common. And you always discover this when you take them out of those environments and put them together someplace, as we did in Istanbul. The other general managers of banks, I had, I had, uh, uh, I had a Palestinian, I had a Maronite Catholic as a dear friend, 
I had uh, <clears throat> uh, we had a, some follower, a, a Druze, who was a, a man, general manager in Turkey. We had the, a Pakistani who was head of Kodak. We had Germans from uh, in our group, uh, and uh, who were heads of pharmaceutical companies. And the, the coolest thing was the party where you're speaking a lot of languages every night, enjoying yourself, overlooking the Bosphorus, and you're watching Lebanese people having the best time. Christian, Palestinian, Muslim, having the best time because they have everything to talk about with each other when they're not sitting in the middle of Beirut. And this kind of goes back to what I talk about here, uh, dealing with the issues of perception becoming reality. There's no way to avoid them. Uh, but having better knowledge and better appreciation of one's own shortcomings and, uh, and the strengths of others goes a long way at the end of the day uh, to trying to keep the lid on uh, so that civilization can continue and all that will be threatened by our smartphones and so forth, which are basically debilitating everything that's in this world. Although, uh, you know, who, who, could, who could live without them? I, I, my, my work is hugely ambitious. I mean, Gibbon only wrote about the rise and fall of the M Roman Empire during about 1785. I mean, extraordinary. And he didn't have Google. And in the 14th century, Ibn Khaldun writes the Mukaddimah, which I write about in the book. Unbelievably prescient. Considered in the West now as the father of modern sociology. Fascinating man. Those guys didn't have Google. But on the other hand, I'm doing 2,000 years, lots of kingdoms, lots of civilizations, lots of empires in my book. And it, uh, you'll, even find, you'll even find a picture of Ray, Ray, Ray Charles uh, with Ahmed Ertegun, the founder of Atlantic Records. So this is a multicultural thing that you go, if you go through the experience in my book, and I, if there are no more questions, I thank you. Uh, oh, we have one more. Okay. I'm over time. Yeah. Uh, if, if possible, could you reach our coach? Yes, sir. I know the events that needs to get the things moving. I hope some of you brought books for me to sign, or will consider buying a book for somebody you love or somebody or yourself. So thank you again for coming.